Today's episode is brought to you by the U.S. Bank Altitude Go Visa Signature Card. To learn more, visit usbank.com slash altitude go. As a traveler, it's a fact you're going to need to manage your spending in different currencies. You need a service that not only helps you send, spend, and receive in different currencies fast, but also does it without the hidden fees or exchange rate markups. This is where WISE comes in. WISE is the easiest way to connect all of your finances internationally. I've been a customer for over a decade. It's been a lifesaver for me as a traveler, a nomad, and now a permanent resident abroad. If you're a traveler who's still using your regular bank, you need to check this out. Join 16 million customers and learn how the WISE account could work for you by downloading the app or visiting wise.com slash travel. That's wise.com slash travel. Thank you to WISE for supporting today's show. This episode of Zero to Travels brought to you by the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder with seven drive modes. The Pathfinder's available intelligent 4x4 is built for even the most epic journeys. Learn more at NissanUSA.com. I recently came across a book called Go Here Instead, and I thought it was a cool premise. It contains an alternative travel list. So they take popular destinations like Mount Kilimanjaro, the Galapagos Islands, the city of London. And they give travelers an alternative destination to consider, or perhaps even to visit, one that allows you to have an incredible travel experience and also avoid the crowds and get off the beaten path. And I thought, why don't I have the author on to share his five favorite alternative destinations from this list? So I got in touch and he was kind enough to say yes he's here today joseph Rini is his name and he's got an interesting background he splits time between the uk and the czech republic and he talks about life in the czech republic how he started budget traveling at 16 years old how he became a travel writer and guidebook author with no journalism training which i think is great advice for anybody looking to break into any creative field what it was like teaching in nepal in a buddhist monastery talks about hospitality exchange, his experience couch surfing, and it gives advice on both sides, whether you're a host or you're a guest. He also shares some advice on going all in on something you love, which in his case was writing. You're going to get an idea for scaling a business as a creator. And of course, this list of five alternative destinations to visit in Europe and plenty more happening in this episode right now. You're going to love it. So buckle up, strap in. Thanks for being here. And welcome to the Zero to Travel podcast, my friend. You're listening to the Zero to Travel podcast, where we explore exciting travel-based work, lifestyle, and business opportunities, helping you to achieve your wildest travel dreams. And now your host, world wanderer and travel junkie, Jason Moore. Hey, what's up? It's Jason here with ZeroToTravel.com. Welcome to the show, my friend. Thanks for hanging out, letting me bring a little travel into your ears today. This is the show to help you travel the world on your terms to fill your life with as much travel as you desire. No matter what your situation or experience, we're going to dive into the interview in a moment. You heard what it's about. Joe shares his top five alternative destinations in Europe. I love a good alternative destination option. I'll share 
One of my favorites that I've been to on the back end of this interview, as well as leave you with a quote to go about your day. So stick around for that. And one last thing before we dive in, get in touch if you haven't done so. Jason at ZeroToTravel.com is my email and you can leave me a voicemail. I have a link in all of the show notes. Would love to hear from you. I got the pleasure of meeting up with a listener last week here in Oslo where I live and it was really cool. So I want to give Jarell a shout out for taking the time to meet up and have a coffee and have a chat by the Oslo Fjord. It was wonderful and I invite you to get in touch as well. If you're passing through town or just to say hi, give me your feedback, your suggestions. I make this show for you after all, so I would love to hear from you. Okay, with that all said, please enjoy my conversation with Joe, and I will see you on the other side, my friend. Joseph Rini, welcome to the Zero to Travel podcast, my friend. Thank you very much. Very happy to be here. And is Joseph only used when you're in trouble, like the parent thing? Like, Joseph, get in get in here. Yes. Knock it off. <laughs> exactly. So for some reason, uh, when I started, uh, when I went freelance, when I was maybe 22, I just decided Joseph sounded more like a real name, you know, like somebody that you might actually uh, trust their advice but I mean, I'm Joe. No one, no one calls me Joseph. It was a decision I made and bought a website for 15 years ago, and uh, I've kind of stuck with it. You know, I don't want to trigger your subconscious at all here. If I by calling you Joseph, next thing you know, you think you're in trouble, and you're like, you know, running exactly, yeah, yeah. You can call me Joe. <laughs> That's fine. <laughs> of course, we'll link up to your website and the show notes and everything. You are a freelance travel writer based in the UK and the Czech Republic. And you've written for Lonely Planet, DK Eyewitness, National Geographic, Rough Guides. And you also have won some awards in, in the comedy world. And you also have a content writing agency called World Words. So anyway, we'll link to all this. And I'm, I mean, there's a lot to talk about here. First of all, the sort of the foundational aspect of this episode is this list we're going to share with you a little bit later. I have no idea what it is, but I found that one of the books you wrote was called Go Here Instead, The Alternative Travel List. And I thought, well, this is an interesting angle. And we've talked about it on the show, you know, with over tourism and different things like that, trying to find these alternative destinations. But you guys actually formalized it into a pretty cool book that you wrote where you laid out some alternatives to popular destinations. And then you also include some advice on how to go to the, the original destination if you want to do that as well. So I, I asked you to like pick some of your favorites and we're going to share those later. In the meantime, I, I wanted to take a minute to kind of learn a bit more about your travel experience. If I understand correctly from your website, have you been sort of budget traveling since you were 16? You say on your website that you could, you had some like cash in your pocket and because of the rise of budget airlines, you were able to kind of take off with your friends. But were you actually taking proper trips at 16 with friends on your own? Yeah, I was. Yeah. Really? So I was very lucky because, you know, this would have been early 2000s so it kind of coincided with very very cheap flights with with kind of budget european uh airlines so ryanair easyjet ryanair was our go-to uh because it was kind of enjoyably bad um, <laughs> i mean what do you expect but, for a pound right well exactly well i mean literally we would get flights where you paid one p and then the tax 
So it was, you know, maybe 18 pounds. And we would, as me and a couple of friends, we basically decided we wanted to be as adventurous as we could on like an incredibly low budget. So, you know, from our uh, weekend jobs, we would maybe, you know, go away with 150, 200 pounds for a week to, well, we gravitated towards Central and Eastern Europe because of those prices. So we ended up going to places like Riga in Latvia. Uh, we went to Dubrovnik before it was Dubrovnik, you know, this big expensive cruise destination. Uh, went to Bosnia, to Serbia, all kinds of places. But we also managed to go to places like Stockholm on a crazy low budget as well. Uh, to Rome, to Hamburg. Salzburg was actually our first trip. That was kind of quite a good learning curve in terms of how do you go to places that aren't traditionally budget destinations, but still do it on a budget. Um, but then also very much gravitated towards the, the cheap places as well. I'm just thinking of my own experience growing up and, and maybe the difference here is the US versus the European mentality or whatever. But you know, growing up in the suburbs, like at 16, my world was so small even if those cheap flights existed, I don't think I would have even like I. It's like I was blind to the fact that you could actually. I just didn't know you could actually take you know a few hundred dollars and figure out how to go somewhere. And you know, at sixteen years old, how did you guys come to realize like, hey, we could actually? And and what did your parents think? <laughs> yeah, it's funny. I mean, I mean, people did think we were strange. <laughs> I think that's fair to say. We traveled a bit as kids. Never, um, you know, big luxury holidays or anything. We we had a caravan, so we used to go to uh, around the UK and then go to France and Germany for holidays. So I had a sense of, you know, there was there were places to go. And then I was just lucky. I had a couple of friends who, who kind of had the same mindset as me, who, you know, as teenagers were kind of very uncool, weren't interested in spending money on clothes or video games or anything like that. So... You know, our entire budget, I mean, personally, all my budget went on kind of uh, obscure 1970s BBC sitcom DVDs and uh, traveling. That's basically how I spent my money. Yeah, my parents were were very relaxed about it. My dad used to drive, (laughs) because to get the cheap flights, so we live quite close, where I grew up, quite close to two of the biggest airports in Europe, uh, Gatwick and Heathrow. But to get the budget flights... You couldn't go to either of them. You had to go to Stansted. Of course not. Or Luton, which are the other side of London. (laughs) So my poor dad, you know, we we thought we were being so clever because we saved ourselves, you know, £10 on a flight. And then my dad had to get up at four o'clock in the morning and drive us three hours. Yeah, you guys saved (laughs) £10. We we saved £10. (laughs) It was great. My dad was definitely out of pocket. But I mean, they were cool. They were letting you travel like this internationally yeah, at 16 really years old i mean yeah you guys must have been fairly trustworthy kids i guess i mean was that i think we were very very sensible uh kind of yeah wait sensible kids. british travelers i haven't seen too many of those around now <laughs> yeah <Okay>. yeah um <laughs> well we we were traveling pre um i was traveling long before the kind of cliche drunken steg do Yes. So, no, I only uh, say that because I was recently in Blansko, Bulgaria. And well, I mean, I'm sure there were foreigners there was the off season. But the biggest group of foreigners that I saw was young British folks tearing it up and having a good time. 
In Bulgaria, that's interesting. Yeah, in Bulgaria, Prague was, yeah. was that place for a long time. And yeah, then okay. uh, Riga seems to be quite common now. Hmm. Uh, I've not heard about Bulgaria being... I mean, we're kind of ev- we're kind of ruining everywhere for everyone. Like, there's <laughs> no way you, you can't go. <laughs> I did. I mean, it's. I, I hate it. I used to fly a lot between the UK and Prague, and, and half the flight would be uh, drunk men on sectors. Uh it, it is awful, and I apologize unreservedly <laughs> for my country in this hey, in this regard. And I'm, I'm American. I mean, we got we got plenty of uh, apologies to, to make too. No, I, I honestly like just through the podcast. Like I've, you know, this was a recent trip, so I happen to notice this. You know, this big group at this one bar we went to for Opera Ski. But all kidding aside, I mean, all the British folks that I've had on the podcast just incredible. You know people like yourself that have just some done so many cool things and are adventurers. And so I'm a bit spoiled. I'm in a, I'm in a bit in like the British travel bubble. That's not the one that you're describing, I guess. Mm-hmm. You're in the expat bubble. That's, that's the problem. <laughs> cause, cause you know, you, you live in Norway, is that right? Yeah. 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 So I live, I mean, as you said, I'm kind of halfway between the UK and Czech Republic and you end up, I mean, most of the Americans I meet are expats. So by nature, they're not your typical American, you know, most of the British people you meet here are not typical British people because typical British people don't go and live in the Czech Republic. They go and get drunk on holiday on the coast of Spain. I think that's quite common among expats. You have a kind of a, a kind of vague perspective of, oh, all the Spanish people I've met are like this. So, well, that, but those are the Spanish people that by nature are not typical Spanish people. Right. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Yeah, you can... Well, I mean, that's kind of what humans do sometimes, right? We generalize for better or worse. It's it's good, it's good to be aware of not doing that, I think, especially when you're traveling, like painting these broad strokes of this, these groups like this and this, you know, it's not a good thing. <laughs> not a good thing to do. Well, you mentioned splitting time. Yeah. Talk about that. I'm curious how you, I mean, you're an experienced traveler, you work in travel, but you also work in comedy, which we're going to talk about. Was that like a goal of yours to split time? This is a certain lifestyle, right? That affords, yeah, some different perspectives. I, I want to hear a bit more about the lifestyle of splitting time and yeah. Yeah, so I, I think it probably wasn't a conscious decision initially. So I initially moved to Prague. Uh, my wife, then girlfriend, is Czech. Uh, we met in, in the UK, in Manchester. Uh, when I was working there for a bit, that was my first my only real job before I went freelance. Uh, we met through couchsurfing. I was the, back in the day, I was the Manchester ambassador for couchsurfing. Very exciting. She came to the city and she was like, wanted some tips on where to go. And I just, we met for uh, one evening just to go to the pub and, and yeah, we kind of went from there really. So I came to Prague to be with her initially. And then we spent, uh, you know, many years moving around to different places, sometimes because of her work, sometimes just because we wanted a change. Normally after about a year and a half, we got itchy feet and wanted to go somewhere else. So we lived in um, Austria for a bit and in uh, London and then Edinburgh. And then when we decided to come back to Prague, we we weren't really ready to give up on Edinburgh because it's just, it's such a great city. So we kept our flat there. And we just we just kind of uh, go back and forth. So at the moment, because of COVID, it's been, you know, there's more more Prague than there is Edinburgh, but we still manage to go back quite a bit. And I write 
a lot of um, guidebooks on Scotland. So I end up going back okay. and traveling. And so where are you right now? Pictures. I'm in Prague right now. Oh, okay. Yeah. I'm actually and in a little village outside Prague, but you know, no one's Which one? What's it called? It's called Visipi Uyezd. It's uh, southwest of Prague. If you go to there's another city called Berlin, and it's kind of halfway in between. What is daily life like there? What do you what do you like about it? Oh wow, big question. Um, daily life is nice. <laughs> uh, I mean, Prague is a beautiful city. I work from home a lot. I only go into Prague probably now once or twice a week. Uh, so my daily life is quite quiet. We're in a little village. We're surrounded by countryside. So we go out, walk the dog. I have a two-year-old son. So we go out, uh, you know, to the play park and things like that. So uh, it's quite quiet daily life, uh, except when I'm on a job and then I'm kind of rushing around trying to see different things. But yeah, day to day, it's uh, it's a nice, quiet existence, really. When your son gets to be school-aged, are you going to have to pick mm-hmm. a place? Yes. Yeah. So that's the debate is where we are long term, which we don't know yet. And that's going to that's gonna be a, a factor. But he's starting preschool uh, in September and he's going here. We already know the place. They have a really good, one thing I really like here is they have a lot of these kind of woodland forest schools where they basically spend the whole day outside, yeah, even cool. in winter. It's like that in Norway too. Yeah. It's very nature. Right, yeah. Okay. I think the threshold is like minus 20 and then they go inside <laughs> in winter. Otherwise they're outside and like you've got the six, you know, the, the preschool is three to six and the six year olds are, are building the fire in the mornings for them all to sit around. And uh, I, I love it. It's just a lot of responsibility for, for young children. Um, and yeah, it's great. It's very different to how I grew up, but I just, I, I really like it. It's very outdoorsy country generally. I think, yes, I mean, Norway, definitely Scandinavia generally is is very outdoorsy as well, isn't it? Yeah, I've come to the realization recently. I have two kids uh, right now, four and seven at the time of this recording, soon to be five. Um, But, you know, because we live here and same with you, like you're kind of living the daily life. And if you uh, take your child into the daycare and you're reading the books and all the things, it's like I get to have a Norwegian childhood, even though I didn't get to have one you know, which has been really eye opening. And it's kind of a way to have like a second childhood experience in some way as an adult, which sounds kind of funny, but um, getting all like the pop culture references for what all the kids grew up on here, you know, and it's like, I'm learning it at the same time that they are. So it's been, it's been really cool. Have you noticed like with yourself or and or with your son, so this could be like a twofold question. Does your behavior change a lot when you go back and forth maybe not a lot but you're still who you are but you know what i mean do you do some of the nuances of your behavior change due to the definitely culture? definitely social etiquette is is quite a big thing and normally takes me a little a, a few days to kind of adjust this, this is kind of broad brushstroke stuff but as a general rule um in the czech republic the uh the driving is quite frenetic and quite aggressive when i arrive in the uk i, I maybe start driving <laughs> this way and then quickly realize that's not that's really not acceptable. <laughs> you um, need to drive like a maniac? <laughs> yeah, yeah, a little bit. Yeah. And then um just kind of the distance people keep is is very, very different. And then things like uh you know getting onto to 
buses and and metro subways like the you know the etiquette about kind of do you just push <laughs> do you let people off first etc cetera, etc cetera. so uh those kind of things you have to you just have to adjust slightly um otherwise not really i mean my son's at the point where he's still uh he's not speaking kind of full sentences yet so the biggest thing really is the language is that he's the exposure his day to day he's exposed much more to Czech than to English um but then when we go and stay with family in the UK he's obviously uh picking up picking up a lot of English or speaking exclusively in English do you speak Czech uh i do speak Czech kind of enough to get by it's <laughs> yeah. a constant i've been studying for a long time uh my i mean i always say i basically have i think my brain has a capacity for one and a half languages possibly i think i've possibly you know kind of lower level conversation is is about where i can get to and i found over the years you know i spent time at one point i spoke pretty good spanish that's all gone at one point i spoke pretty good german that's all gone i basically just get pushed out by the other half a language that comes in so you know i hold out hope one day of complete fluency but i think uh it's unlikely it's unlikely to happen at the moment me and my son are maybe you know we're sparring it out we're on a similar kind of level but uh <laughs> he's going to be talking behind my back face yeah i feel you on that i feel i had a good grasp of spanish for quite some time and then it, it sort of just disappeared when the norwegian came along i guess i don't know and how is your norwegian it's it's pretty good i guess it's you know good enough my neighbors might tell you something different, but um, <laughs> we'll get back to the interview in just a moment. This episode is brought to you by U.S. Bank. Recently, I went out for tacos and it wasn't even Friday. Yes, we have Taco Friday in Norway, not Taco Tuesday. Well, more importantly, I could have earned rewards for every scrumptious bite of those chorizo soft shells. Introducing the U.S. Bank Altitude Go Visa Signature Card. Earn four times points when you go out for dining or order takeout and restaurant delivery, including tacos. Plus, you can earn two times points when you shop for or order your groceries, two times points when you need to fill up or charge up at gas stations and EV charging stations. You're even rewarded with two times points just for your favorite streaming services. Go to usbank.com slash altitude go to learn more about how you can earn 20,000 bonus points worth $200 if you spend $1,000 in the first 90 days of opening your account. Win big with the U.S. Bank Altitude Go Visa Signature Card. Visit usbank.com slash Altitude Go to apply. Limited time offer. The creditor and issuer of this card is U.S. Bank National Association pursuant to a license from Visa USA, Inc. Some restrictions may apply. This episode of Zero to Travel is presented by the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder. From muddy jungle paths and snowy trails to rolling sand dunes, the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder has the capability to take you to some of the most epic destinations on Earth. We're excited to partner with Nissan because our listeners know we love to celebrate the joy of exploring the world and finding the best off-the-beaten path destinations to visit. And there's no better vehicle for that 
than the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder. With seven drive modes, the Pathfinder's available intelligent 4x4 is built for even the most epic journeys, and it even has the best towing capacity in its class, up to 6,000 pounds, so you can bring the fun with you. But Nissan also knows that it's not just about where you go. In a Pathfinder, the real fun comes from getting there, and that's something we love celebrating here on the Zero to Travel podcast. We believe that life is about finding that joy within the journey itself, and that's why we're thrilled to partner with Nissan to celebrate adventurers everywhere. So thanks again to Nissan for sponsoring this episode of Zero to Travel and for the reminder to chase bigger, better, more exciting adventures and enjoy the ride along the way. Learn more at NissanUSA.com. Now, back to the show. Uh, were you an English teacher in Nepal? I was, yeah. That was my, um, after I left uni, uh, that's the first thing I did is I went to Nepal to be an English teacher. It was kind of the scariest thing I could think of doing, not Nepal, but the teaching, like the, you know, standing in front of a, a room full of kids was, I was very, very shy, uh, even at university. Like I didn't, it was really traveling that helped me get over it a bit. From the UK, a lot of people after, after university, they take a year and they go typically to Australia, New Zealand, Southeast Asia. And travel around. So I, I wanted to take a year, but I didn't want to do the same route as everyone else. I'd never been outside of Europe, I think, at that point. So uh, Nepal, I just saw this voluntary program, which was teaching English and uh, like volunteering in an orphanage. So that just kind of that really appealed to me, uh, and I really like Nepalese food. So. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I went for that and it was, it was great. I was teaching, um, in a, a high school and also in a Buddhist, uh, monastery, which was, which was very interesting. Yeah. And I was there for maybe two months, two and a bit months. And then I kind of, from there, I kicked off and traveled around Asia and came back in, uh, through the Middle East into Europe. Uh, and I was away for nine, 10 months, I think. Hmm. What did that experience teach you? Oh, God, a lot. I mean, I was traveling by myself. So that was the first time I'd done a big trip by myself, which was a really good experience. It made me be more outgoing because, you know, I had to be a bit more proactive about talking to people. Um, it really taught me about budgeting because I, I basically had a budget for the whole trip. And as soon as my money ran out, the trip was over. So if I if I wanted to travel, the longer I wanted to travel, the less I had to spend each day. So, you know, I managed to find ways of traveling around. Like I went to Japan and South Korea, which are not cheap places, but I was doing it on $20 a day maybe with a combination of, uh, well, not I did hitchhike, but not there. Those, they're not really hitchhiking destinations, but I was, you know, couch surfing or I was staying in, I was staying in onsen, like these these spas, or jimjilbang, they call them in Korea, these uh, kind of indoor baths. And they just, they're open 24 hours and they have a little kind of relaxation room with uh, with mattresses on the floor. So I just used to stay in those overnight. Um, or internet cafes back in the day when those were things. You know, found all the cheap places, the cheap food, um, or, you know, places where you order a drink and you, they bring you some some nibbles. So it was, I think, practically, that was really useful, just learning how to do things 
cheaply and see somewhere quite expensive on a budget. Um, but mainly, I mean, for me, for my um, you know personal growth, then it would have been definitely being more outgoing, uh, learning to talk to people, and um, and I discovered couchsurfing, and that was a huge thing in my life. As I said, I met my wife through couchsurfing, but I also, you know, when I moved back to Manchester, we hosted, we had people every night for two years uh, on our couch. <laughs> so I met hundreds and hundreds of people from different, all over the world um, who were coming to Manchester, mostly football fans or music fans, um, and occasionally some odd people. So we hosted lots of people. So, so couchsurfing was a big thing for me. And actually, I wrote one of the first travel articles I wrote was about couchsurfing. I read it. National Geographic Traveller. Oh, you, you, you did? Yeah, wow, you were you've done uh, research. You were sleeping in a bathtub with a spout in your back, right? At one point. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> and still loving life somehow. Still loving it. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, there was also, yeah, there's a level of discomfort because I'm, you know, I'm quite a big guy. I'm six foot five and, uh, you know, I'm not skinny. Yeah, that was, uh, like learning to kind of cram yourself into whatever available space people have was uh it's quite good fun i think probably something to do when you are 22 rather than <laughs> rather than later in life but um yeah it was great couchsurfing was it was a big part of my life so uh yeah that, that was a big part of the trip well i wanted to ask you some advice because my kids being the age that they are now i feel like this could be a good time to start opening up for like couch surfing or warm showers or one of those things where we can like maybe let some travelers stay here. And then, you know, I always love talking to travelers and we can, you know, I think it's a good experience for my kids to see, Hey, people, you know, it's just like a constant reminder, like, Hey, these, you know, there's meeting people from different cultures. There's a whole world out there, people out there exploring, having different adventures. So any advice you would have for people that want to host, let's say, uh, I mean, you could give us advice on both sides because you've, you've done both sides as a couch surfer and as a host, uh, maybe. And, and we, we don't have to limit it to couch surfing because this is just like hospitality exchange, right? I know there's some other websites and things out there now. So maybe some of your advice can apply to other. Yeah, other I think from a guest point of view, so if you're staying with other people, I would just say you want to be as you you want to be as engaged as possible and not 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 cause problems you know <laughs> so my, my kind of policy was you know the first time you meet up i would normally bring um bring something like a small token um like a chocolate bar or something or yeah something like that yeah. well so when i was hosting later sorry to jump around but when i was hosting later i asked people if they could if they were traveling from their home country to us bring us something from your home country and we had a big cork board in the kitchen and it was all things so you know sometimes it was postcards sometimes it was like a pack of spices or kimchi or like something that that people have bought and that was great. Like that was such a nice thing to just have in the house. Yeah, I think things like that are really nice. But but when I was staying with people, I just would always buy them a beer, um, you know, and just it was about trying not to um, be too much of a nuisance. But also, you know, people people are there. You know, I think there's there's a temptation to see it as this is a great way to stay somewhere for free, whereas actually and it is but actually it is a cultural exchange the people do it because they're interested in meeting different people from different places 
So you have to kind of engage with that. What you will get out of it when you're staying with people is they will take you to places you would never have been to. You know, I, I went to, you know, occasionally I, I went to like a wedding, <laughs> like someone's cousin's wedding in uh, Jordan, which was great. Um, but also like in Korea, we just went to like karaoke bars or to really, you know, just strange parts of town that you wouldn't, you wouldn't know about as a tourist. Um, and then when you're hosting, it's your job to kind of, to do that really, to, to help people see, give them advice and help them see things they wouldn't otherwise see. Uh, and we used to, when we had people at weekends, we would just take them. So from Manchester, we have a couple of national parks nearby, Lake District, Peak District, um, but also like Yorkshire Dales and things. So we take them away for the weekend. Um, or we used to organize big meetups, like cultural things like pub, a pub quiz. People loved a pub quiz. Uh, I didn't really realize it was kind of a quite quintessentially British thing. Um, but yeah, people people enjoyed that. So I think it's, it, it really is just about the the cultural exchange. When I started, it was me and my housemate. We were two quite young men, so we weren't really thinking about vetting people or about personal safety. I think it's very different if you are, you know, a family with kids or if you're, um, you know, a woman living by herself, for example. I think that's that's another aspect you have to consider. But most of these platforms, they have opportunities to, you know, have those conversations in advance. Um so I'm sure there's there's probably some good safety advice that I that I never took, mm-hmm. which which should be part of it. But never had any but issues. Generally, we we gen never ever we had. I probably stayed over the years. I've probably stayed with 100 people, hosted 200. Um, there's probably been one or two people that I didn't really get on with, um, but nobody who was ever like a, a serious issue ever so the benefits you know, massively massively outweighed being six five maybe helps too you know it's like well i'm not gonna mess with this guy well that's it that's that's the thing so so many people ask me about like oh what's it like to travel by yourself and like, well you know as a <laughs> a big white six foot five bloke it's fine <laughs> but that's not necessarily transferable advice for everyone i meet so i'm i'm a little bit cautious about um just necessarily assuming all of the stupid potentially risky things I've done are uh, the right way to go for everyone. What is the riskiest thing you've done? <laughs> well, I used to hitchhike a lot. I basically did like the Everest, uh, I hiked up to uh, Mount Everest base camp uh, pretty much by myself and nearly uh, ended up kind of falling <laughs> falling off the side of a mountain and, and, and struggling to make my way back up. Uh, no one knew who I was. No one, uh, no one, you know, had my phone number or anything. Uh, very stupid. Um, yeah, a few things like that. Just just general kind of silly things, which I probably wouldn't do now. Um, but yeah, just just kind of, you know, anyone with half a brain would have, you know, told people their route <laughs> that they were taking up Everest. Well, I mean, sometimes when we're younger, we only have half of our brains. That's the problem. That's true. Yes. Let's go with that. <laughs> Still developing in some ways. Okay. So you made the leap to full-time writer in around the 2010s, I guess. I, I guess uh, here I'm looking for some advice too, if you have any on kind of going all in on something that you're passionate about or excited about. I mean, it doesn't seem like you ever really 
major way down any traditional path whatsoever. But maybe I'm wrong here. When you started, you know, doing these crazy trips at 16 and then you went, you know, after uni, you went to Nepal and did all that traveling. And I mean, was there any sort of we'll call it traditional path at some point that you had to break free from, or were you just always kind of like, you know what, this is, this is just like this sort of unconventional lifestyle approach is, is, is for me. So I'm just going to keep riding this out and see what happens. I didn't have a conventional path as in, I didn't study to, you know, be a doctor or a plumber or anything like that. You know, working nine Um, to five somewhere, but you know, what happened with me? So I went to uni. I studied um, script writing, so screenwriting for film and film and TV. Not a guaranteed job at the end of that. Um, and then I ended up going after my uh, gap year. I ended up working for a marketing agency in Manchester. That's how I ended up in Manchester. Um, and then basically, I knew someone who was uh, starting out in doing some travel writing, and. Um, I was asking their advice and I just happened to mention that I was, I'd booked a trip to go to North Korea because I was kind of, I really wanted to go somewhere different. It's, you know, ethically, I'm not sure I'd make that decision now, but at the time I was like, wow, that's, you know, there's nowhere more different than North Korea. So I'm going to book this trip. And I'd spent about a third of my salary (laughs) on this trip. So I was living incredibly frugally for, and not this is a start. It's my first job. This is a not a good salary. Um, so uh, I basically talked to him about it, and he was saying like, "Well, journalists aren't really allowed into North Korea, right?" I said, "No, I have to sign like a waiver saying I'm not a journalist because I wasn't a journalist." Um, and he said, "Well, but maybe you can be once you get back. Maybe you can try and sell like a, an article off the back of it." So that's a good idea. So I did that. I went, came back, um, wrote up something. Uh, published it, put it on a blog, which is which was very stupid. Don't do that. Because um, I then went to pitch to people and everyone said, well, you've already published it. Right. About? Um, <laughs> you live and you learn. <laughs> some, <laughs> exactly. That was quite a big one. But um, randomly, uh, the editor Reader's Digest said, yeah, that sounds good. Let's do that. So, which was, you know, a long way down my list of who's going to be interested in an article in North Korea. Anyway, uh, Reader's Digest came and they they paid for the article. They paid for photos because they had no you know photo bank from North Korea. I've been to this uh, thing called the Ararang Games, which is an annual um, kind of uh, gymnastic festival. Kind of like if you saw the opening to the Beijing Olympics, it's kind of that. It's this incredible kind of mass games uh, gymnastic demonstration in the biggest stadium in the world, 150,000-seater stadium bonkers so um i basically sold the article and the photos and that's still the most i've ever been paid for for a job really even with all the guidebooks you've written and yeah. stuff mm-hmm. yeah 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 one oh, article well, i mean you must have made more on like hang on let me think books. no 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 not not the guidebooks that's true okay so f- an equivalent job I for, for like so okay, for yeah, travel for article, articles and stuff for two thousand two thousand words and some okay. photos yeah it pretty much paid for the trip. Which, wow. That's- so I, I thought, oh my God, travel writing's incredibly profitable. Let's do that. At this point, I met my wife. I, I'd had I'd already quit my job because I was planning a trip to um to Central America. 
And then I decided once I came back from that trip, rather than just try and find another job, I'll move to Prague where it's you know fairly cheap and I will start work as a freelancer and I will go on to, um, there's a platform called Elance, it's up, Upwork, I think it's called now. Um, but Fiverr, there's all these kind of things where you basically say, I will write whatever for for this tiny amount of money. So I ended up writing a lot of stuff about nonsense, uh, you know, replacement windows and all kinds of things. And then as I kind of grew the portfolio, I started to focus in on travel writing. And then on the side, I was kind of pitching stuff off the back of Reader's Digest, pitching stuff to other travel publishers and not having much success because I didn't really have, you know, that's all I had was this one article. Um, But I then managed to win. I won like a couple of travel writing competitions and then kind of slowly but surely I started to get some work with different um, travel publishers. And then that was that really. So off and running. Yes, (laughs) off and running. So I have no journalism training. Uh, I don't, you know, I... What I did do is I went to university and I found out that um, I could write, like people liked things I wrote. And then I worked in marketing as a copywriter. So I knew that people would pay me to write. So I had that level of, you know, I'm not terrible at this. Uh, It wasn't starting off where you, you know, with other things where you're just, I have no idea if I'm good at this or not. My mum likes it. Otherwise, I don't know. So, um, I suppose that was that was very valuable, but I, you know, it's not a, I think not a typical path. Although a lot of people, a lot of travel writers, like I facetiously said before about um, how much travel writers earn, uh, the headline is not very much. So most travel writers do work as copywriters or you know writing for travel brands mm-hmm. and things on okay. the side as well. Yeah, we didn't bury the lead there, right? So they've headline not very much people are always curious well you know affording like a a a lifestyle where you can split time between two places and all that kind of stuff can i ask you where like the majority of your income comes from uh for anybody out there listening that's curious about you know that side of things so for me it is the company that i set up world words which we we can get into that uh a bit later but travel writing alone I think I have some friends who who basically uh, spend probably nine months of the year on the road working on travel guides, and they earn a moderate income to live in the Czech Republic. It is not a well-played job. I'm lucky that I found something else that, that kind of pays the bills. With the content writing agency, are you essentially brokering like articles for brands and agencies and things like that? So or? basically what, yeah. So what I was saying before, how I started, I, I was writing a lot for travel for other agencies and travel writing brands. So I was writing for, you know, Expedia and travel supermarket and these kind of things. And then when I was starting to get more work with what I wanted to do, which was magazines, uh, I hadn't done any guidebooks at this point. Then I just, I had too much work. So I started subcontracting it to another writer who I knew who I, who, who was really good. Um, all, you know, everyone knew what was going on. I wasn't kind of, you know, putting it under my name or anything. Then, you know, it's, it got bigger and bigger because the work was good. And people said, well, can you do this bigger job? 
So then I ended up kind of having three or four different writers that I was giving work out to. And then that kind of kind of crystallized into this business, World Words, which basically became a, a, a full content writing agency. So we had kind of in-house editors who would distribute work among freelance writers and it would come back in. We would ed- edit everything for consistency, a tone of voice and everything else, and then send it back to the client. And our our kind of selling point is that we had very well-established writers. So travel, it's travel specialty. It's um, only, you know, top draw travel writers. So the people that write, you know, Lonely Planets, Black Guides, Moon, all these kind of things for their destinations. And they're all over the world. So if we have a client uh, who is based in Southeast Asia, we can go, oh, great. We have this writer who is who writes the Lonely Planet for Thailand, Malaysia, Singapore. Um she can do she can do this stuff for you uh so yeah so so that kind of grew grew that way and and that is uh how i've managed to <laughs> kind of uh make a living uh out of that and now i do a lot more travel guides i could uh i could make a living from that but it wouldn't be you know, it wouldn't be as comfortable as uh, yeah. having also having the agency. Yeah, and you have to be on the road more and things like that. Just for anybody listening that's, you know, ever considered starting something and they're just like, well, what if I, you know, get overwhelmed or there's too much going on? I mean, that's, a, of course, a luxury problem to have. But I think, uh, you know, taking like the meta view from what you just described with your agency, it's like that's that's a way forward to scale, right? You can be like, all right, well, if you're, if you're good at this and you can kind of, if you're getting too much work, that's the hard part. Like, you know, most uh, like writers, I imagine that's like the challenge is getting the work. So if you can create something where you're able to provide value on both ends and you just bring other people on that do the thing that you do, or you can't do it, but you know, you can bring a bunch of talented people in and you have a good eye for it and you can curate those creators or whatever the case is and match them with the brands. It's like a great service to provide. And of course you have a great niche here where you're, 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 you've niched down to, to travel. And of course you have the street cred and everything, but I just kind of wanted to, yeah, take the big picture view and in case any, that hits anybody's ears right now, it's listening. It's like, Hmm. Oh yeah. Like maybe that's a way forward with the thing I, I want to create mm-hmm. or I am creating. One thing I would say from the, from the business point of view, I mean, I did not, a, I have I had absolutely no intention of ever starting a business. Um, but I also, it was very organic. It wasn't, I think a lot of what you hear is, you know, here's my idea. I need X amount of thousand dollars, seed money, all this kind of stuff. Mine was very much a, uh, you know, it just grew organically. There's not a huge amount of initial investment or anything because it was effectively... Um, you know, when I had work, I gave it to people, to freelancers. I didn't have staff. I didn't have an office. Um, so it was uh, not not as daunting a prospect. And it was almost kind of crept up on me that I was like, oh, you know what? I have a business. <laughs> it just kind of, it wasn't this big. Whoops, I accidentally have a business. <laughs> yeah, how did that happen? Um, and I think that's actually quite, key because a lot of people you know when you say to someone i've got my own business that feels like a very uh, intimidating prospect 
Uh, and there are ways of doing it, kind of using your own talents. You know, particularly if you're freelance creative, you know, the amount of people who are, you know, comedy writers who, who set up production companies, there's a cost involved in that. But often, you know, initially you're one person and you are a company. Um, so it is possible to kind of, to, to kind of segue from, from being one person to being company without it being this huge moment of hmm. entrepreneurship. I love on your website that it's, you know, travel slash comedy writer and editor. You're just like, you know what? I'm not even trying to like brand this and I'm just like mushing together two things that I love. And I'm just, that's just what I do, uh, which I think is really cool. And one of the things that attracted me to having you on as a guest, because, uh, I love that you just, uh, have these interests and you've just found a way to kind of combine them and, and put it out there in that way. Is there any crossover or intersection of comedy and travel writing? I'm just curious, like, what do they have in common for you, if anything? Hmm, that is interesting. Well, I mean, I, I know personally, I always loved when I traveled, I love Lonely Planet guides because they had a sense of humor because they, they would make, you know, and I, you know, now I know that's very dependent on, uh, the individual writer, but there is a general ethos, there's general tone of voice, which is quite playful. So there's definitely ways of getting kind of comic writing and comic observations into travel writing. I mean, travel writing is very observational, comedy is very observational. So there's definitely that element. It's finding ways of um, looking at, at things that that many, many people have looked at before and finding a different different angle or a different way to explain um, what you're looking at. So in that sense, it's very similar. And I don't think I've ever met a travel writer who doesn't have a sense of humor. So there must be something, something there. Um, and also I do know there are a couple of, in the UK, certainly there are a couple of um, quite renowned comedy writers who started, who have done travel writing. I mean, obviously Michael Palin is, you know, very world famous he's more famous now for travel writing than he is for for monty python probably but there are many more there's um uh, a guy called john holmes who does a lot of uh, bbc comedy stuff in the uk he's also does a lot of travel writing so there's there is some crossover i'm not sure exactly where it is but those are the two things that have always kind of tickled my brain i was an absolute comedy obsessive as a teenager and then I went traveling. And those have been the two things that have um, kind of stuck with me, really. Yeah. I guess as you're talking about it, the thing that came out for me is this idea of, you know, both require astute observation, let's say. Mm -hmm. So perhaps that that's the, the link. It's, find, it's finding a, a, a way to express. I mean, I, this is probably true with any creative writing, but it's, but it's finding an original way to an express a you know a common thing so as a you know as a stand-up or as a comedy writer you will you know i mean seinfeld is a perfect example of someone who who will make a joke about an egg timer <laughs> you know everyone's everyone's seen that and no no one's come up with that exact way of looking at an everyday object um or an everyday situation um and with travel writing you know not everyone has been to prague but there are, you know, I'm, I'm millions of articles, blogs, magazine articles about Prague. So how do you find a way to introduce the city or write about it in a way that is not 
is not cliched, has not been done a million times. Uh, how do you, you know, find a different way of, of talking about uh, orange rooftops or, um, you know, snaking rivers or all those kind of things? And it's, uh, yeah, I, I, I think that's the challenge in both is is finding that way that people people can can understand what you're what you're saying. You're not just you know willingly using obscure language that that everyone has to get out a dictionary and wonder what the hell you're talking about, but um, is not something that that people have read over and over and over again. Mm. Okay, I mean, I'm really fascinated by it because I I have no training. I feel like it's very difficult to write comedy, but I love the idea of it. And I always imagine like, oh, they must have so much fun writing those co- like Saturday Night Live sketches where you come up with these stupid ideas and be like, now that's of course the rose tinted glasses version. I'm sure it's like, you know, high pressure and you know, all the things like every other career at a level like that. But just the idea of coming up with funny things. And I, I even see it, you know, like I think the National Park Service in America does a great job on Instagram where they just put some funny things out there that are just like they're just funny and i'm just like oh i'd like to add more comedy writing into my work how do i do that like i'm not a comic so anyway i might pick your brain on that a little bit at the end maybe even pitch you on a recent idea i came up with i want to get your thoughts on this we'll get back to the interview in just a moment would you love to have an incredible cup of coffee every day i've tried it all i've done the pour over i've done the french press but I tasted an AeroPress coffee many years ago, and immediately I was sold. I had to get one. AeroPress is a patented three-in-one brew technology. This combines the flavor benefits of espresso, pour-over, and French press all into one compact portable device built for travel or home. I love things you can use in both places. This device has over 55,000 five-star reviews in over 60 countries. AeroPress is the best-reviewed coffee press on the planet. I've owned one for so many years, I don't even remember how long it's been. And they are under 50 bucks, so they also make an exceptional gift. Thoughtful, proven, tasty, and travel-oriented. Who wouldn't love that? Now, you get 20% off just for being a listener of this show at aeropress.com slash zero to travel. That's aeropress, A-E-R-O-P-R-E-S-S dot com slash zero to travel. That will save you 20% on checkout. Thanks to Aeropress for supporting today's show. Hey, it's Jason here. Did you know you are invited to join the first ever zero to travel community trip? Yes, we're planning a trip together. We're headed to Morocco November 30th through December 9th. And you can get all the details at zerototravel.com slash trip. It's open for booking now. We have 13 spots left at the time of this recording. And you have until the end of March to book. So if you're interested in traveling with an amazing community, this community, a small group of people on an incredible journey through Morocco together with me, Sign up over there at zerototravel.com slash trip to get all the details. Thanks for listening and hope to see you there. Now, back to the show. We should get a little bit into this list. I'm not sure how many of them you came up with for Go Here Instead, the book, and we'll link to it, uh, the alternative travel list. And again, I just love this angle that uh, you know you, sent, uh, you had the publisher send over the book and it's it's really cool to see how it's laid out they'll have like in, in big headlines like the wild atlantic way for example in, in ireland is the alternative to great ocean road 
in Australia, which I presume is much more crowded and, and touristed. In travel, I feel like, I mean, it's not just like a trend or we're like, oh, because of over-tourism, you, don't, you want to go to a less crowded place and all that stuff that we love as travelers. But also, it's just also maybe about having a different kind of travel experience with when it's less touristed, right? Perhaps getting a bit closer to a place in a different way. I feel like there's always going to be the places, you know, you go to Rome and you're probably going to want to see the Sistine Chapel. You're not going to be like, the alternative to the Sistine Chapel is, it's like, well, it's the Sistine Chapel, you know, like there's only one of them. So, I mean, like at some point you're always going to, you know, want to go to the thing because that's, that's normal. You know, I'm looking at this one like Greenland as an, an alternative to Antarctica. If you're wanting to see, you know, glaciers and things like that, and it's not about getting to every continent, well, that's a much more affordable way to get the same magnificence, I guess, or spectacular uh, scenery. And, and that's somewhat similar. So again, you know, it just depends on you. But and, and I'm just so I wanted to hear how many did you bring today on, on your personal list? And how did you like create the list? Is it like personal favorites? Or just like, did you pluck out interesting ones? Like, give us the give us the lowdown here, Joe. So basically, uh, what I did for the book was was mostly um, uh, Central Europe, Central Eastern Europe. So I thought I'd kind of stick to that thing because those are my areas. So uh, most of the guidebooks I write, Central Eastern Europe and UK, particularly Scotland. So I've basically come up with a list, uh, <laughs> some of which I'm happier with than others. So, so you can cut down accordingly. Well, I mean, you can you can whittle it down if you want. I mean, how many you want to share? Five, should we say? Or uh, let's go five. And okay. Then I, if I have any others, I can I can chuck them in. Let's let's go five. And and I'd like to hear maybe your a, a story behind each one if you if you got one. Oh, no, wow. no, okay. no pressure, Joe. Okay. Well, I mean, you know, it could also just be it just be more about the philosophy of why you chose it and things like that too. That that's totally cool. Let's kick it off. Give us your number five. Okay, so number five, I would say uh, the Moselle River instead of the Danube. Okay. As a river cruise destination. River cruise. Okay. I think I've never the, done a river cruise. Oh, okay. So in Europe. It's become a huge thing. The last five or 10 years, uh, the amount of, if you go through, I mean, particularly the stretch of the Danube from Vienna to Linz in in, in the northeast of Austria, through Melk and Krems. I mean, it's just, it's queues of, of cruise ships. Um, and you see it if you go uh, to to Budapest, if you go to all kinds of places that, that are that are really full of river cruises. So it's become a big thing. The Moselle, I still feel, is a little bit underserved and probably less famous than, you know, obviously the Danube, but also like in Germany, possibly the Rhine and the Elbe are maybe better known rivers. The reason I really like the Moselle, I think the uh, this uh, western part of Germany is really beautiful. It's It's wine-growing region. So you have these these steep hills either side of the river covered in vineyards growing unbelievable Riesling. Um, and it runs also runs down through Luxembourg and into France. But that part of Germany, we used to, I was saying before that we used to go on caravan holidays as a kid. So we used to spend a lot of time in, um, in this part of Germany. We went there uh, on a trip when we were maybe 15 or when I was 15, sorry. And then uh, my parents actually bought like a holiday house 
in a little village on the on the Moselle. Oh, so yeah. okay, which wow. they've they've just sold a few years ago. That's a personal connection. <laughs> yeah, so th- so that has been a big part of my life, like going back to this area and discovering it. Um, and I th- I just think it's it's very beautiful. And nowadays, I think German wine is probably getting getting the reputation it deserves. But certainly, when I was a kid, you had kind of uh, there was a brand called Blue Nun, which was famously awful wine. <laughs> And Hock, I think, was one. Um, but basically, the, these small producers are just, some of the wine is, is phenomenal. And so I still, you know, order big packages of, of 24 bottles uh, that they send over from Germany to, to our place in the Czech Republic. Uh, it's so good. And it's, it's just, this is incredibly beautiful. So that would be, uh, yeah, I think that would be um, one recommendation. Well, so mountains, mountain ranges, I think I was struggling to pick one in particular, but I do think, you know, the Western European mountain ranges are very famous, you know, particularly the Alps. People go French, Swiss, Austrian Alps, um, occasionally to the Dolomites in Italy, which is, I think, is a little bit under uh, underrepresented. It's absolutely beautiful. But I think the mountain ranges in Eastern Europe are some of them are really beautiful as well. In Czech Republic, you have Kirkenosche, which also goes into into Poland across the border. Um, the Julian Alps in Slovenia, which uh, go right up to Lake Bled, uh, incredibly beautiful. Uh, the Tatra Mountains, which is a Poland-Slovakia border, um, and then obviously the Carpathians in Romania. But there's so many amazing mountain ranges in the east of Europe, which are so much quieter. Uh, although the Tatra, <laughs> having said that, the Tatras in Slovakia during COVID, when when you know, basically people people were stuck in their own country, um, the queues there that did look like the the French Alps. That was insane. But I think now it's things have settled down a bit now. But um, yeah, I, I I just think that the mountain ranges in Eastern Europe are very overlooked as ski skiing and hiking destinations. They're all generally very well marked. There's trails everywhere. Just, you know, a line of paint on a tree will tell you to follow, you know, follow the blue trail for 40 kilometers to here. Uh, and it's, yeah, it's just a pleasure. I, I would highly recommend a hiking or skiing, if that's your thing, uh, trip to, to Eastern Europe. Awesome. All right. We've got river uh, a river alternative destination and a mountain one. I love it. Mm-hmm. Love it. So I'll go uh, city break okay. destination. Uh, as much as I love Prague, I write about Prague all the time, and you should definitely go to Prague. But if you've been to Prague, or if you're looking for something a bit different, uh, I think Vilnius in Lithuania is a really interesting alternative. Um, it has some similarities, like it has a, a, you know, it's a really beautiful old town with a castle on top. Uh, has some really good beer actually like you know I, i'm not going to say anything but czech beer is the best in the world because it is but vilnius has a really good craft beer scene and they do a lot of kind of darker beers stouts and porters which coming from the uk is a is a, something i really like um and czech is very lager they do have um ales but but they're not 
great generally, whereas the lager is is amazing. Um, and I think it's just got Vilnius just has a really cool kind of alternative vibe. There's this whole breakaway district which which has its own declaration of independence. Um, really? <laughs> and there's this yeah, it's it's a really interesting story actually. And there's this this other area which is kind of a preserved kind of 19th century town. It's all wooden houses and there's no um, sewage system or anything, but people still live there. And I think I, I really like the food. There's a thing called, uh, my Lithuanian isn't great, Zeppelini, I think they call it, Zeppelins, basically. They're like kind of Zeppelin-shaped dumplings, which are kind of grated potato with with um, meat or, or cheese inside or curd um, and covered in sour cream. And amazing, really, really nice. I keep saying amazing. I should find some, as a travel writer, I should really have some better <laughs> adjectives than this. I but, mean, well, it's, but, you know, there are only so many adjectives, I guess. I don't know. No. That's true. Sounds epic. I'll, I'll say epic. I was going to ask you, how much is a beer in Czech, uh, in Prague nowadays? Not as cheap as it used to be but still cheap by most standards. So uh, your basic Pilsner lager like a good, uh, yeah, fresh. is around 45 crowns, which is one, one euro 50, one euro 60. Okay, yeah. All right, But thanks. when I first came, it was, un- it was under a euro compared to Norway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I must be a sadomasochist <laughs> for asking that question. That's all. That's why I'm saying 10 12 euros what's how much oh is it yeah been? yeah yeah depending on what you get yeah between i mean 10 would be the low end you know insane 10 to 15 i remember we came we uh with actually one of the earlier trips i did as a teenager we came to norway we went to uh, bergen uh, i was a little bit older actually i wasn't a teenager but um we didn't really have any money so we had one beer for the whole yeah. Right. week it's good and for we health. lived on 7-eleven yeah. hot dogs yeah yeah. because <laughs> that was the cheapest food option there you go you got it down budget travel in norway <laughs> there you go all right oh yeah the top tips for traveling in norway <laughs> <laughs> we're down to the last couple here we got we had the moselle we had uh the eastern european mountains uh the mm-hmm. uh lithuanian city of Vil- vilinius is we call it vilinius vilinius, vilinius. Vilnius. Yeah. I mean, I'm, my lisp doesn't really do it justice. Vilnius. Yeah. Um, so my next one, I was going to say, um, I'm going to move to Scotland and recommend Orkney instead of the Maldives. <laughs> Slightly facetious phrasing. But um, basically the scuba diving, if you go to Orkney, uh, obviously you're wearing a dry suit rather than a wetsuit. But the scuba diving in Scarpa Flow, which is this this kind of bay uh, near the main island of Orkney, is phenomenal because basically there was a uh, during World War One there was a the German high seas high seas fleet was captured and it was kept in this bay, and then one night the captain decided to um, scuttle the fleet to basically stop the technology getting into to British or allied hands. Uh, and so the remains of this fleet are basically on the seabed in this bay around Orkney. So some of them have been lifted, but they're still, I'm not sure how many are left, kind of four, four or five possibly. But you can basically go scuba diving among World War I wrecks. Uh, plus Orkney is amazing. 
like I mean another comparison I guess would be uh between the stone circles in Orkney and the and Stonehenge because the, the stone circles are amazing I think Orkney is such a such an amazing destination uh it also has one of my so let's go off on a tangent but I really I really like Orkney <laughs> um there's one of the thing is they have this uh, what they call the Italian church which is basically Italian prisoners of war they um basically made made a church from the uh from an old shelter so it's all corrugated iron and they were allowed to build a catholic church basically in their downtime as much as it was so they kind of polished up concrete to look like marble and they've used they've kind of melted down bullets to to make these kind of uh these uh kind of gates and it's just and and drawn these frescoes it's an incredibly beautiful little chapel all made from basically scrap metal and and um concrete it's very very cool i have to ask you because it's in the same neighborhood and my wife she's been always wanting to go to shetland because of the scottish Mm -hmm. detective series there's like oh, a right, yeah. British detective series. It's not, you know, we get a lot of British culture here in uh, in Norway. Mm-hmm. So, have you been? Is it worth worth a visit, or is it just uh, is it all it's cracked yeah. up to be? Yeah, okay. Shetland's great. I really like Shetland. Okay, it's quite a good gateway from Norway to Scotland because it's kind of quite Scandinavian. They have like a big, big um, Viking fire festivals and things in the winter, and the accent is kind of. It sounds, I mean, from from my perspective, sounds quite Scandinavian as well. Uh, it's a really interesting cross culture. Um, it's also the only place where I've ever I've ever seen that has a, a an airplane runway crossing. So you know, you get a train crossing <laughs> where the barrier comes down, yeah. so that the train oh, can go across. Oh, yeah, okay, really. They have this for for the runway of the airport, <laughs> so the car has to stop, let the plane land, and then carries on. Oh, nice. Okay, yeah. Yeah, Shetland is very cool. I'd recommend. I mean, Scotland. Scotland is great, particularly the islands. I write a lot about, probably more about the Western Isles, so Lewis and Harris and uh, Barra and North Uist and all these kind of things, more than Orkney and Shetland. But I've been to most of them, and uh, they're all great. There's not a tree anywhere. <laughs> it's all very kind of desolate and windswept, but. Um, it's beautiful. There's a romanticism to that uh, landscape as well, Absolutely. I'd say. All right. Got one more for us? Yeah. Well, I have a... Do you want another Scottish one? Or do you want a... Uh, well, I mean, you tell me. We've covered... We've got a river one, a mountain one, a city one, and an ocean one. You've done a great job of making this diverse. Is there, you know, I don't know, uh adventure one? Or oh, now I'm desert, struggling to find another one, theme. Or, uh, yeah, what would it village a village one? I don't know. I, you know what? You tell me. I've got. Um, you wrote the book, maybe. man. <laughs> <laughs> None of these are in the book, by the way. I wrote about. Um, well, what I did write about, that I can mention, is the walls of Ston in Croatia, which I think is a really interesting. It's very historic. It's kind of the second longest wall after the Great Wall of China. Um, and it's older than the Great Wall of China, so that's really interesting. But I won't focus. I won't focus on that now. The one actually, I think, might work. We might as well stay in Europe since is, we've been in Europe the whole time. Yes. So there's the Bay of Couture in Montenegro, mm. which 
the comparison I made is is Halong Bay in Vietnam. Oh, okay. Uh, but just because they're bays, right. <laughs> to be honest, there's okay. not much similarity that's a between loose, them. That's a loose interpretation. That's a very loose comparison. <laughs> I think that wouldn't have got past the editor go <laughs> here instead. But, you know. All right, fair enough. I'll You're being honest about it. So that's <laughs> the important thing. <laughs> um, but it is, you can explore it yourself. You don't have to pay for a very expensive uh, boat uh, to go around Halong Bay. But anyway, so it's this it's this kind of secluded, sheltered bay. Um, if you go to, if you travel to Dubrovnik, uh, then it's I think it's maybe forty five minute drive down the coast across the border into Montenegro, and it's just a beautiful bay. It's backed by mountains, so looking out um, into the Adriatic. It's really beautiful, and it has like lots of kind of small little islands that you can go and go and see. Um, and there's one in particular, which is an artificial island uh, called Our Lady of the Rocks. And it has a, uh, a church on top of it. And the story is, which depending on who you speak to is genuine historical fact or myth, possibly somewhere in between. But the story is basically in the 15th century that a group of uh, fishermen they found an icon of the Madonna and child um, and they put it on, uh, they basically set around creating an island to house this icon. So every day when they went out fishing, they would throw a stone into the water and when they came back, they'd throw another one. And over, you know, 180 years, I think it was, they had an island that they could then build a church on wow. and put this icon. Is that inside. really how it went down, or is that just mythology? Uh, well, yeah, I don't, <laughs> I don't want to claim hundred percent historical accuracy, yeah. but I think it's a lovely story. Yeah, it's a great metaphor, you know. Yeah, so so I think that's really lovely, and the church is beautiful as well. Um, apparently, the it also the, another story is that it has this tapestry which is made from the hair of the artist who made it. Um, so, but, but generally, I mean, that's one small Island, but that Bay is somewhere to kind of base yourself for four or five days and just be on the coast. Uh, it's, it's an incredibly beautiful part of, part of Europe that is Montenegro is becoming more of a destination now the last few years. Um, but I think it's still somewhere you can enjoy, certainly out of peak summer season that you can enjoy, uh, uh, it's still pretty quiet. Ah, amazing list. Thank you. So much diversity there. And, you know, this this isn't going to be included in the quote-unquote official list, but I wanted to ask you, <laughs> uh, somewhere in Europe, if, you know, you've been all over, but let's just keep it to Europe since we've been in Europe this whole time uh, with the list. If you, uh, like, had to fly somewhere later today and you spend a month somewhere in Europe, where where would you go? Just, like, gut reaction. Oh, uh, Greece. Okay. I don't know why, where that came from, but that yeah. was my gut reaction. <laughs> All right. I, I, I love, I mean, I think, I think it may be the best food in the world. Mm. Uh, and it's just, it's just beautiful. Yeah. And the history, it's, it's kind of got everything. Yeah. Very cool. Can you describe British humor? <laughs> Because um, I think I get my head around it sometimes, and then I'm not sure. But I, I have come to appreciate it more and more, being based here and seeing uh, the pacing and, and the rhythm and kind of the uh, 
yeah, I just uh, wanted to hear. Dude, what, are you, what are you struggling with? Not, not really struggling. I just, <laughs> I want to hear you describe it as a comedy writer and as somebody who grew up with British humor and geeking out on it. Just, mm-hmm. yeah. Can you describe well, it? Weirdly, I've, I did write uh, my dissertation, my thesis at, at university. Uh, I wrote about uh, British sitcom Are you and s- okay. quite a lot about the differences between British and American really? sitcom. Oh, okay. So I can, all I right, can do right. some dissertation yeah. at you but if you like. This was a stroke of luck. Yeah, so uh, <laughs> lay it on me. I have, to remember, I have to remember it now. What was the conclusion? I do remember, um, well, I know that, that a lot of British humour is traditionally, I think less so now, but traditionally is class-based, which is obviously, you know, it's not really a system that, that you have in the US. I mean, you could argue whether you have a class system or not, but certainly this kind of weird hereditary class thing. So a lot of um, British humour will come from people trying to be trying to be perceived as being of a higher class or status than they are. Oh, I So see. there will be a lot of... You mean foundationally or the actual humour? I think that the character, so the, the characters that are kind of creating the the comedy, uh, that will be their goal will be trying to be something that they're not, trying to be perceived as something that they're not. So I mean, again, things are changing a lot. I think in some ways, American, American sitcoms have become more British, and British sitcoms have become more American in recent years. But again, traditionally, if you take take uh, The Office as an example, the UK version, US version. So David Brent, the UK version, is a very classic British sitcom character. He's a loser who is trying to be perceived as as uh, something that he isn't. So he thinks he's funny, people love him, uh, you know, people look up to him, people respect him. We know that's not true. And from... And a classic British thing is that we're laughing at the characters. We're laughing at this ridiculous person. Whereas I think traditionally, American sitcoms, you're laughing with them. You know, I love Lucy, Chandler in Friends. You know, you kind of, you, you, you might be laughing at some of the things they do, but ultimately they're quite aspirational characters. You know, you wouldn't mind being those people. Whereas in the UK, no one wants to be David Brent or Alan Partridge or Basil Fawlty. These are all people, these are awful people <laughs> that you don't want anything to do with. And so the American office, Michael Scott, I would say they've, they've kept some of that stuff of the British, British side that you are kind of laughing at him a lot of the time. But he's still, you know, played by a very successful, good-looking man. Uh, he is also success quite successful at his job they actually i think uh i think this is right but 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 as i understand it i believe there's a point at which after the first series the writers room got together and said that it wasn't quite working for an american audience because they didn't understand why michael scott kept his job because he didn't seem to be any good at it so they put in this whole thing early in the second series where he goes out on a sales call and he does really well and everyone's like wow okay this guy i understand why this person uh, okay kept yeah in that job, makes total even sense though he does all these awful things yeah <laughs> whereas the british one they didn't need to do that because the idea that somebody who is fundamentally useless is at the top of a company that's not an alien concept <laughs> that's just 
That's just, yeah, okay, that's we get just that. life. That makes sense. <laughs> yeah, that's just life. And this awful person that's just, just hangs around. That's just, yeah, that's fine. That's that. hilarious. <laughs> so those, I think those are some kind of small fundamental things. Again, I would say traditionally it's quite, um, uh, yeah, laughing at people. So a lot of kind of, of sarcasm and irony and, and a lot of kind of, I think, I think it's true in both cases that humor, a lot of humor comes from the more, obscure references you you make yeah which therefore can make things a bit impenetrable because Mm. american culture is so global that you know you kind of know even if you don't you know i've never been to a wendy's i don't i've never they don't exist as far as i'm aware in europe but uh you kind of know what it is because you've seen it in a a a dozen films i see okay but if you know a british sitcom is talking about um I don't know, Walker's crisps or right. <laughs> or Rover cars. Or it doesn't like, mean anything to it, us. You know, yeah. yeah, other people are just like, okay. And that's fine occasionally to have that. But when when a lot of the humor, I think Alan Partridge is a good example of, of one that doesn't translate very well. Massively successful sitcom in the UK. I think a lot of American comedy fans love it, but it's not has never had mainstream success because a lot of the humor is based on him being a very kind of parochial little Englander kind of character who makes a lot of references to quite obscure um, nostalgic brands and and things like that. And, yeah. and it doesn't translate. That's a great breakdown, man. I mean, you just enlightened me. So next <laughs> time you. I'm watching some of these shows, I'll be able to... Yeah, I think that was so well said. Uh, you, you reminded me that I actually wrote a paper in college too. I totally forgot about this on the shift in humor... Mm. Uh, in the U in the United States, and the comparison I used was Tom and Jerry, the cartoon Tom and Jerry. Do you remember Tom and Jerry? Mm-hmm. They were like a cat. I do. Mouse. And Beavis and Butthead. Oh, okay, yeah. Which is two totally is different act. styles of cartoon, of course. Um, but I, I forgot about that. Okay, so yeah, here's my pitch I came up with. Because I, I was like, you know, how do you write a joke, man? Maybe you give me some advice here. But I, I just for fun, I came up with this idea the other day. What if there were like American fortune cookies, you know, like American-based fortune cookies, mm-hmm. and 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 you'd pull them out and they'd be, you know, Americanized fortune. So you could have one that's like a prophecy that says, um, the next time you go to a Walmart, you will be lovingly greeted at the front door, for example. <laughs> <laughs> That's very nice. Maybe there's something there. I don't know. <laughs> I like that. Maybe we can team up. We can do some British ones that say, you don't, don't even try. It's not worth it. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, fun exercise. I watch a lot of stand-up and I admire it all, but I've never studied it and I never tried to write anything and I don't know how you do it. It's just, uh, it's. I think, well, I've not done stand-up because uh, inherently terrifies me. Some someday I will possibly, but I mean I think really the best thing you can do is go and do stand up. You'll very quickly learn because you have a live audience telling you whether something's funny or not. Yeah, but you still need to uh, write all the jokes, you know. Yeah, well that's true. That's true, but I mean it's in terms of a of a a theatre for learning. What's the deal better. with? Sorry, I'm not yeah. going to do that. <laughs> but the, the thing is, like if you if you sit down and try and write something and it's not funny then um, there's no consequences to that. Whereas if you stand up on the stage and say something that's not funny, 
you will quickly learn to write things that are, that are better than that <laughs> yeah, because yeah, yeah. it's so excruciating yeah. having to stand there for five minutes with no one laughing. Right. Unless like that that's, is That's joke. my tip. Go do stand-up. Unless you're doing like the, you know, the performance art kind of like, you know, you're making, you're like purposely making it awkward. So it just, it becomes so awkward that after a while it just becomes funny because of the awkwardness. That's <laughs> such a, that's, that's such a talent too. To create like so much awkwardness that it becomes funny is, that's a weird space, a weird energy. Yeah, it is. But there's a craft to that. I don't think it's just someone's no, standing oh, no, up and of course. saying unfunny things for five minutes. Yeah, that's what I mean. Yeah, yeah. It's like to, to be able to like actually intentionally do that is is a talent in and of itself, I think. Cool, man. I, I really enjoyed chatting with you today. I, I wanted to give a shout out to the book one more time, Go Here Instead, The Alternative Travel List. And you have many books and we'll link up to uh, your site and everything. I like that you used Philadelphia, my hometown, as an alternate to New York City. So thanks. Shout out to Philly. Last two questions, really light ones. Um, what matters most in life? <laughs> Oof. Uh, <laughs> hmm, how cheesy can I be? As I think probably or... family. That's very cheesy. Laughter. Let's go laughter. No, there I don't go. think family's cheesy. It's heartfelt. <laughs> family and laughter. Okay. Yeah. The two, the two go hand in hand. Well, they should do anyway. <laughs> Is there a word or phrase or mantra or general philosophy that you're living by nowadays? Yeah, I think getting out of your comfort zone, I think, is quite a good guide to life. And that's with... I think most things that that have come, uh, good things that have come uh, to me, uh, that's a very weird weird phrasing, but uh, I think it is basically those situations where I've I've put myself in, um, the times where I've put myself in situations which are are, not comfortable. So traveling is part of that. Um, Just traveling to places which are not easy. Also, yeah, when I went to teach English in Nepal, um, deciding to travel solo in, in different places, uh, trying, yeah, trying to become a comedy writer and seeing your work up on stage, all that stuff is uh, is uncomfortable, but you learn and you f- and and you know you fail quite a lot, but it's all a learning curve. And uh, oh yeah, second br- second mantra would be embrace failure. 100%. If you want to do anything creative, you will be rejected a lot more than you'll be successful. You know, for every travel article pitch I've sent to editors, you know, uh, one in 10 maybe makes it through. Uh, for every, you know, comedy idea you pitch or, or you know, even less than that probably. So you need to be comfortable with not being successful and also know that it's not a necessarily reflection on you personally or your talent it is just about other people have other priorities you can't control that just keep keep going and uh if you're okay at what you do then you'll get there in the end love that advice last one number one travel tip Uh, go i think (laughs) one word it's go yeah it's easy to to not go there are a million reasons not to travel uh life is much more comfortable if you just stay where you are uh or you go to the the easiest place you can but it's also much less interesting 
Cool. Thanks so much for your time today, Joe. And Thank you. Uh, again, if you want to learn more about Joe's work, josephrini.com will link up to it in the show notes as well as the agency you mentioned and some of the comedy stuff you've done and uh appreciate your time and uh, hope we get to meet up in person at some point somewhere in the world do this again yes me too great <laughs> thanks very much jason take care you too bye-bye have it i want to thank joe reaney for stopping by the show loved hearing his list and the book once again is go here instead we'll link to all of that in the show notes as well as everything we mentioned one of my favorite alternative destinations i mean it's not so off the beaten path but i had the pleasure of visiting nicaragua a while back and i had been to costa rica years before that and i found that of course you know, with these alternative destinations, it's a different culture, different food, different people, of course, all of that. But I was there for a surfing holiday and I was looking for those Central American vibes and I was able to get them at a much more affordable price. Wonderful beach, great people, good food. And that's the thing with these other places. They're not going to be the place that they're replacing. They're going to be different, but maybe to kind of wrap this up, it's just that these alternative destinations offer some kind of similarities in terms of the vibes, the types of experiences you can have, of course, in a completely different setting, and a lot of value in going to places where most travelers are not going. So that's why I wanted to share this list with you today. I hope you enjoyed it. It was a fun one to put together. I'll leave you with a quote on not following the crowds in the spirit of this episode this one's from Matshona Diwayo who said don't run with the crowd fly with the stars thanks for listening and enjoy the rest of your day I'll see you next week peace and love to you and yours cheers this podcast has been brought to you by zero to travel.com ideas and advice to make your travel dreams a reality 